This morning I, I woke up uh, early. I normally wake up early on Sundays. And I went outside and it wasn't boiling hot. Anybody else feel that this morning? Right? Some of you? Even though you came to second service, you're still, you're up, you're up, you're there. It was, it was exciting. I know some people love summer, and they just want it to be hot all the time, but, uh, you know, I just loved it. it. It reminded me of what's to come. There's something to look forward to uh, in the new season, in the fall season. And, uh, you know, I remember when Pastor Steve, I know most of you know Pastor Steve, retired pastor here, he would open up and he would welcome, and uh, a lot of times he would mention the weather. He'd mention outside and the things he saw. And what I loved is he always viewed creation uh, with hope and beauty and design of remembering God's goodness to us and remembering Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. And there, there is a cool air in the, I mean, it's gone now. It's not, it's, you know, it's a whisper. But it was there. It was there this morning. And, uh, you know, Jesus is coming back. All of you who are hungry for God to speak to your hearts, would you pray with me? I'm going to pray again. Uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you because of what you did. We love you because of who you are. You're still working now. You're still doing good things. And we know that you're going to come back. So as your children, we ask, would you uh, speak to our hearts? Speak to us through your word. Help us as a church family to draw our attention to you. Would you do a mighty work in this room and through this service? Would you gift those who are serving even though they don't deserve it? Would you gift us to encourage one another to love and good deeds? Would you do the work that no man can do because of who you are and what you've done? And we, uh, we depend on you. You're our only hope. So we look to you, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. May 24th of this year, I don't know if any of you remember what you were doing on May 24th. May 24th was actually somewhat of a sad day for our nation. A tragedy occurred in Uvalde, Texas on May 24th. I don't know if any of you remember that. I don't want to go into too many details, but lives were lost. An enemy decided that he was, out of hate, going to uh, attack people. And tragically, uh, people died. May 24th. It's still in the news. There's still ongoing issues surrounding it. But one of the biggest outcries of that day and that school was the hesitation of people to confront the enemy. The hesitation of those who were called on the scene to go in and confront that enemy and stop that enemy from tragically taking lives. People were outraged. 
Lots of people were there. 376 official authorities figures were there on the scene. And it took them 77 minutes to confront the enemy. In a similar way, that tragedy is happening every day in the church. What do I mean by that? There's an enemy that is attacking people, devouring them, as the New Testament tells us. Like a lion preying on people and destroying them, killing them, taking their joy, taking their lives, taking, taking what God wants to give to them, stealing, killing, destroying. And there is only one group of people that are called on the scene. Only one. The church is called on the scene. We have a commander, a chief, that has given us the great commission, has given us the power, has given us the weapon. Has, we're not waiting for an invitation. We're not waiting for a call. It's not that we don't know what's happening. Lives are being lost and people are dying. A spiritual death, physical death, dead in their trespasses and sins. And the chief commander has called the church on the scene to confront the enemy. But a lot of us who are on the scene, just like that day on May 24th, a lot of us are afraid, uncertain of what to do. Who's really in charge? What training did we have? Am I willing to go in and risk my life and face the enemy to possibly save the lives of others? That same tragedy is happening every day. Do you know every second, two people die? Two more people. Gone. Stepped into eternity. Four more people from when I just said that are walking into eternity. Four more people are walking to either heaven or hell. They are entering, and there's an enemy that's trying his best, and with all his cronies, working his best, working his fingers to the bone with rage and anger, is fighting and attacking and killing, working so hard to take the lives of people. And, and the church is called on the scene. We're there. The question is, are we acting? Are we taking it seriously? Do we see it for what it really is? Or are we in shock? Are we ignorant? Are we just complacent? Are we afraid? Why aren't we going in, is the question of the age. We are on the scene. There's no question about that. The commander has given the call. We've been given instruction. We've been trained. We've seen the example. 
We have the power. We have the armor. We have the weapon. We have everything we need. The question is, are we sleeping? Are we hiding behind a corner, just worried about our safety and our comfort in our own lives? That's the question for the church. And I want to show you in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, I want to I I show you three lessons we can learn from Paul's example in ministry of reaching the lost, but I want you to remember the why, because the why is not directly, explicitly explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, it's explained in the book of Acts, it's given throughout the New Testament, it's shown in the sacrifice of Christ, but you have to remember why did Jesus come, why did Paul go? And why are we the hope of the world? You have to remember the why to really learn these three lessons. So I want to show you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, lessons we can learn from the missionary Paul. But I want to, I want to remind you, we're not waiting on Paul. The situation isn't, better call Paul. Better call, and his name was Saul too, actually. Better call Saul. We're not waiting. We're not calling missionaries. God has already called you. I'll read through the passage and then we'll, we'll learn the three lessons together. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes to them, he says, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preached God's gospel to you. The idea is, as we preach God's gospel to you, verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In just those four verses, we have a how-to. We have instruction, but you're not going to care unless you keep in mind the why. Why did Paul do this? Why did God decide for this particular letter to be preserved for us as his inspired authoritative word? Why is Paul telling these Christians, remember this, look at this, mimic this, follow me, get the example. Why is God wanting us to know this? So three lessons we can learn from Paul's example of reaching unbelievers. Number one, it takes hard work to remove barriers. One lesson we can learn about the example of Paul is it is hard work to remove the distractions and the hindrances and the walls put up between us and those we are called to share the good news with. Look at what he says. He says, for you remember. Now, why is he saying this? Is he sitting there going, uh, hey, you remember that time? Yeah. Why you bring it up? Oh, nothing. Why is he wanting them to remember? Paul, just like he classically does, 
Oh, remember this? Now you do it. Remember this? It's so that you would do it. Why did God preserve this? So that we would learn from it. This isn't about someone else. This isn't a third party. This is us. For you remember our labor and hardship. If you look at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, they always have that greeting and it identifies who's writing it. It's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul wasn't working alone. Whenever Paul was alone, it was unintentional and it always sounded sad. You guys remember when he's like, everyone left me. And that wasn't like, hey, everyone left me. It's more like, everyone left me, you know? Paul wanted to work together. We need each other in ministry to work hard. We can't do it alone. We need one another. He says, for you remember our hardship and labor. Our labor and hardship. Those two words, labor just means labor. You know, we've been talking about Labor Day. Uh, will is free labor, if anybody's looking for free labor, obviously. Um, you know, working hard. God gave us work. You know, work is good. Do you know that work was given to man before the fall? Work is not a result of sin. Work is God inviting us to care for his creation. It's a joy. It's good. It was before sin. And so God invites us into work. Now, now work is toil and labor and by the thorn and the sweat of your brow. It's difficult. But God has still called us to work. And Paul's like, you remember how we worked, labor. And then he uses the word hardship. That's, that word, it's a different word. It's used to mean like working against difficult circumstances. Like when you're working, but you feel like you take one step forward and two steps back two steps backward. You're working your fingers to the bone. It's hard. You're getting scrapes and calluses. Uh, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your back. You are working so hard that it's tearing your body down. It is, it is heavy upon you. It is pressing upon you, and it is difficult. And he says, you remember how we worked? How we worked like that against persecution and, and accusation and beatings? Floggings, being lied about, having our reputation spoiled by the lies of others. You remember that hard work? Because if you look in Acts chapter 18, you find Paul and Silvanus and Timothy went to, uh, he went to Thessalon uh, Thessalonica or Thessalonica. He went there on his second and third missionary journeys. He brought Timothy along with him during his second missionary journey and uh, Silvanus with him. And they worked really hard. They were only there for about three weeks. And they worked so as not to receive money from the Thessalonians because he didn't want them to see him as like what we think of as a TV evangelist who just wants money. So he's saying, remember how we worked really hard night and day so that we would not be a burden to you? That burden means to weigh you down. We didn't want to burden you, but why? Because we're just nice guys. No. Did God preserve this so we would think highly of Paul? No. The reason that Paul worked like this, even though he didn't have to, is because he knew if he received from them and he took from them, it would distract the gospel message. That's why he says, we worked like this so we wouldn't be a burden as we preach the gospel to you. We wanted you to hear the gospel without this... Uh, this wrong accusation or this thought that we just want your money. 
We worked really hard. Paul didn't have to do that. As an apostle, he could have received from them, but he chose not to. Why did, why did Paul choose the, the lesser traveled path, the more difficult path? Why did he work so hard? Because he wanted them to hear the good news and not be distracted. You know what we learned from Paul? It takes really hard work to remove barriers from the lost people around us so we can witness to them. It takes sacrifice. It takes work on our part. It's like we choose to work for them. I like to call it premeditated evangelism in the first degree. <laughs> it's where you intentionally think. Paul, Paul did not walk into Thessalonica and was like, oh, I don't know what's going on here. He knew the culture in the day, and he thought before he got there, listen, I have this gut feeling. There's this inspired feeling. If, if we try to receive money from them, even though we're due it, even though it's lawful and it's right and it's just and it's not wrong of us, it can, it can be a burden on them. It could be a barrier to the gospel. So before we get there, we're going to work really hard. Timothy, we're going to need your young, your young self we need you to work hard, buddy. Sylvanus, you and I, we're going to have to, you know, everyone calls Paul a tent maker. He was a leather worker. He didn't just make tents. That's a misconception of, if you learn the culture, he worked, he did many things that were made out of labor. You couldn't just make money making tents back then. You had to, you were a leather worker. And so he, he, he made all kinds of things out of leather. And he learned to do that craft, probably because that's easier than wood, takes less machinery. You had a rag, a few tools, you can use leather. So it was, an, it was a job where he could get into and make some money. And God blessed him in that. He chose that so that they could hear the gospel without the distraction. What about us? As God's church on the scene, called with the Great Commission, are we working hard to remove barriers from the people? Are we thinking, okay, what could distract them from the gospel message? How can I work hard or think carefully or word it just right? How can I sacrifice my preference and my comfort so that they can hear it? I don't have to. It's not by law I have to. It's, a, it's generosity. It's me following Jesus' example. How can I work hard to remove barriers? Uh, we're part of the FEC, Grace Community Churches. We're part of Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. That's our network of churches. We have about 60-plus churches that we're connected with, and we love that. We're so much better together, and it's such a blessing to this church to be connected that way, uh, to have that help, to have that connection. And so we're part of them. Well, one of their pastors, a guy named Eric Wood, was on Good Morning America this past month, like the Good Morning America. And you might be thinking, well, Jack, it's because the FEC is so popular. And you're wrong. We, we are not that big. 60 plus churches is not a big denomination. That's not huge. He was on Good Morning America because he and his church decided to create an app called NeighborLink Fort Wayne. It's going to become national. It's going to change the name, I'm sure. They created an app so that their community could do what we did on the Big Serve Day this April. An app that continuously allows their church to find out ways to serve their community. They created this app to show love because they wanted to give the gospel to their community without just, just words, even though words are necessary and important. They wanted, they desired to work hard night and day to go the extra mile to, to figure out what to do that would 
tear down a wall, tear down a barrier so that their community would hear the gospel. And it was so great and it was so successful, he went on Good Morning America and now he's famous. And, and I touched his shoulder. Yeah, I prayed with Eric. Yeah, that's on screen too. That's recorded forever. I, I know that guy. He's part of our church. I'm, I'm just kidding. He's part of our network of churches. Um, how can we work hard as a church family and as individuals to break down barriers, to remove barriers, to remove distractions so that we can reach the, un, the non-believers, the unbelievers around us? What can we do? Can we talk a certain way? Can we work a certain way? Can we be generous? Can we gift? Can we work? Can we sacrifice? What can we do? I want to give you a few personal examples because everyone loves a sermon when you don't know how to do it. Uh, let's give an application to point one. What are some ways in which you can work hard to remove barriers? Well, just think of your neighbors. And not everybody lives in the same kind of place, but just think in general, your neighbors. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know their names? Me, I was really convicted and encouraged by this by another church in Colorado that actually started, and the guy wrote a book. He was a lead pastor at the time. Uh, he wrote a book about neighboring. Just know their names. Just write, I write them on my Apple Notes. I have a phone with me all the time, a tablet. I'm digital. I'm, you know, that generation. And so I have my neighbor's names, and when I see them, I remember their names. I even remember the names of their dogs. Uh, and their dogs are so cool. I love their dogs. Anyway, uh, I remember their names. If you just remember your neighbor's name, that means something to them. Say hi to them. Go out of your way. Don't just get in your garage and shut the door. Don't just stay inside. Make an effort. Go the extra mile to try to get to know their names. Or your coworkers. Find out something you can pray for them. Just one thing, even one thing for six months. Don't think, I'm going to rule the world and I'm going to like witness to every person I've ever, no. Just think realistically. How can I know their name? How can I know just something specific? Have a goal in mind and just try to reach one person. It will snowball and it will grow after that, but it starts with one. Just make an effort to work hard so that you can remove barriers and get to know them, get to love them, and they can hear the message. In an illustration of my, I live in a neighborhood that looks nice, so even against my better judgment and desire, I have to keep my lawn up pretty good. I have to. I don't have a choice. Now, I've been to other neighborhoods in Newton, and sometimes I envy what they don't have to do. I have to do it because I don't want to be the pastor on the block that's a lazy bum and his yard looks horrible. I don't want that barrier to be between them and hearing the gospel because you know what? People are waiting for Christians to fail. They want an excuse to not hear it. They don't want, they, they're thinking all the, the labels and all the negatives. They're kind of just, our culture is built for that. And so sometimes you have to work hard, even though, does God care about my lot? No. I don't have a love relationship with my grass. We have a very distant relationship. If my grass died today, I'd be like, eh. But because I love my neighbors, and it makes a difference if they're going to hear the gospel, just like the Thessalonians would not hear Paul, which is why he said it, I have to work hard and premeditated evangelism in the first degree. I got to think, how can I remove this barrier? How can I work hard and, and be creative? Just pray. The Holy Spirit's super wise. He will give you insight. He will give you encouragement. 
But don't make excuses. Don't make excuses not to go in. Don't be afraid. The spirit that's in you is more powerful than, than the one that's in the world. God has given you a weapon. You're not outgunned. He's given you armor. You're not defenseless. You have what you need to reach your neighbors. Don't make excuses. What if, what if God made excuses like we do? Let's just, let's just play a game for a minute. What if somebody talked to Jesus in heaven and was like, you got to reach lost people. And he's like, you know what? Here in heaven, I don't live around a lot of lost people. I don't work with lost people. I mean, all the angels now, they're all fine. A third of them left, but I don't work with them. I'm just not around a lot of lost people. And what if he was like, and I don't know, they might reject me. They might reject me. They, they might say lies about me. It might ruin my reputation with some of them. I might suffer. I might lose my job. I might, I might, they might, they might hate me. What if Jesus was like, it's too hard to work hard for them. I don't want to leave my nice place, my comfort zone, my bubble, my culture I've created up in heaven. You know what Jesus did for us? The human mind can only barely imagine what Jesus had to give up to go from there to here. To suffer and die. To work hard, not for his friends. He made them his friends. Before he created the world, he chose to come for you. He left his comfort zone. He left his place. He had a good job. He was running uh, the universe. That's right. He was running the universe. He left. He was abandoned. They did hate him. He did suffer. He knew it was coming. There was a moment when he was on the cross, you know, a sad moment that we have yet to really understand where he quotes one of the Psalms. He quoted the whole Psalm. We only have part of it. But he started the Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why Jesus was vulnerable enough to say that out loud for you and for me? So that we would get it. So that in our best human efforts, we can try to imagine the hard work he went through to save us, to, to break down every wall and barrier for you and for me. And you know what he said? He told them this is going to happen. They didn't even believe it forever. It took them to the moment, the week of, to finally like, whoa. It wasn't until he rose from the dead that their minds were finally really open. He told them, this is going to happen, and I want you to love them like I have loved you. I want you to love them like I've loved you. When you love someone, you'll work hard for them. You know why Paul's saying? For you remember. You remember this, our labor and hardship. How we work night and day to not be a burden. Why? So that we could preach the gospel to you. Now go and do that. 
Work hard to remove the barriers. The second lesson we can learn from him is it only takes, sorry, not only, it takes holy living to earn credibility. If you're going to reach non-believers, you can't be just an openly obvious, disgraceful hypocrite. You just can't be. If you're going to say, hey, follow Jesus, and you are obviously not following Jesus, it's going to look bad. It's going to turn people away. Now, this is not a guilt and shame session. None of us are perfectly holy and righteous. For you sensitive people, I just want to implore you and urge you, holy living is much better than whatever you're doing if it's not holy. It's much better. And I know you're struggling and you feel like you can't. God will help you. He will walk with you. Sanctification is a pathway. For you, brother or sister, I know it feels hard, but God is with you. Don't give up. Now, for those of you who are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious, probably mostly men, that's just truth. I mean, that's real. In our culture, it is. To you, I say, what's, what's wrong with you? Why? How can you not look at Jesus' sacrifice and say, that's a real man? Are you proud of your disobedience? Your manliness? I don't have to be holy. I can watch what I want. I can do what I want. I can treat people how I want. How foolish are you? In in light of what Jesus has done for you, who was a true man, and offers you all the help and the power that you need to live holy, why do you not turn your neck to him? Do you want to die a fool? You think that thing is worth it? You think that substance is worth it? You think that show is worth it? You think that that coarse jesting is worth it? You, you, you think that ignoring Jesus at your job is worth it? Is it worth it? Is that better? Is that what a real man is? You know it's not. And for the women, you know, go to women's Bible studies. They'll tell you the women version of that. <laughs> it takes holy living to earn credibility. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 You are witnesses. He brings up witnesses because he's saying, witness matters. What you see matters to the message. You are witnesses. You saw it in my life. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how, and he uses three words, devoutly, righteously, blamelessly. You saw my holy living. Devoutly means personal, moral holiness. Like just Just plain Jane, I am following God's law. I want to be pure and holy. It's not funny that sexual immorality, sexual immorality is not funny. It's not normal. It's wrong. Uh, Drunkenness is stupid. It's wrong. It's foolish. It leads to debauchery. It leads to more sinful, silly, boyish, immature actions. 
Devoutly means a holy life. Your witnesses, you saw how we were committed to holiness. You know what he's trying to teach the church? We need to be committed to personal holiness. Then he uses the word righteously. Righteously is just what it sounds like. It means justice like in a judicial sense. You know, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were apostles, or Paul was an apostle. They were messengers to the church. He acted with authority. He told them, listen, this is what God wants, and this is what the church ought to do. They were able to do that. Now, we don't do that anymore because there's none of that. The canon's closed. The scripture's closed. We have the New Testament. Now, we no longer have apostles. We have preachers. We have God's word that we need to all adhere to. But he was authoritative, and he made decisions. And he acted righteously. He was just. He said, you saw how we were committed to God's word and we didn't go based on our preference and feelings. We went based on the word of God and you were witnesses and so was God. That's holy living. When God puts you in leadership and authority over your home, over your spouse, whatever it is, he's giving you that so that you would judge righteously and treat them according to God's law. That's what he wants. And then he uses the word blamelessly, and this is the public aspect. The first two were, or the first one's personal, justly means justice and righteousness, right, righteously. And then the third word, blamelessly, I like this word because it sounds like a candy. It's called ememtos. That's the Greek word, ememtos. We, we acted, we conducted ourselves blamelessly, which means nobody had a credible grievance against us. We were the same behind closed doors as we were in public. If you saw me at the pub, I was the same way as if you see me in the living room. When you saw me out in public, the way I acted in front of others was the same when no one was looking and when people were looking. I wasn't one way at church and then another way at work. I was the same man, blamelessly, no credible grievance against me. And he's reminding us of that. He's, God's reminding the church because your witness matters. How you act in public makes a big difference to him because lives are being lost every second. People are dying and going to hell every second. It is, it is a scene of tragedy and the church is the only plan God has. It's up to you and to me to be that holy example because only through holy living do you earn credibility. You discredit your own witness if you're not committed to holiness. Not if you're not perfect, you're going to be an imperfect. And you know what's really great? Confess in front of people that you've sinned in front of. Say it. People, people are drawn to humility. They may not want to do it themselves, but they like it. Confess. Be honest. Have a pursuit of holiness. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're better than the next person next to you. That's not what he means. Paul wasn't saying, look at me, look at me, I'm better. No, he's saying, this is the example that Jesus has given, let's do it. This is the command that the chief gave, let's do it. This is the training we've been giving, let's do it. There's no, room, there's no time to hesitate. More people are waiting for Christians to fail than succeed because they don't want to be judged and we don't want to give the enemy a foothold by giving into that. Our personal lives matter. What we do in public matters. If you want to reach non-believers, one lesson we got to learn from Paul, our witness makes a difference. And he's telling them, you saw how we acted this way. The third example he gave, I'm going to skip Second Peter chapter 3, 
verse 14. The third example he gave, the lesson that we can learn is, it takes personal investment to make disciples. It takes you and me personally involved in people's lives if we want to reach them. Paul wasn't on a pedestal just shouting out to no one and then hiding in a hole and never building relationships with people. He wasn't meeting on the Sabbath or meeting on Sunday or meeting on Monday night. And someone's, he wasn't meeting distantly with people. He, there was no uh, social media back then. He was with people face-to-face, 3D. And it takes that personal investment to make disciples. Look what he says. He says, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you. He gives three personal, intimate type descriptions of what he did, and he adds with each one of you. That means like one-on-one. We were personally invested in you. We worked hard for you to be with you. He says like as a father is with his children. You know, some people don't reach lost people because they don't care about them. It's hard to admit that in church, but I know some of you don't care about your lost neighbors. You, you, you'll say it because it's the right Sunday school answer, but in reality, you don't have feelings for them. You don't care about them. You know you should. You wish you did, but you don't. I know that because I've felt that before, and when I finally admitted it, the church was like, you can't say that in front of other Christians, especially at church. I'm like, what? This is the place where we need one each other more than ever. More than ever, we need the honesty of one another. We need to encourage one another. We need people in this room to come together and say, you know what? I, I totally, totally did not, was not a good witness uh, yesterday at work. This issue came up and I pretended like I didn't care because I didn't want to cause trouble and I felt guilty. I knew I should have done something. I just didn't know what. We need people to be honest like that. We need people to say, yeah, I pretty much straight up denied Christ, uh, but I don't want to tell anybody because I know that's the wrong answer. We need to encourage one another and say, it's not just you. People next to you are dealing with those issues in the culture. They're dealing with those moments of failure. We all know what it's like to fail. And we need to love each other because guess what? The world is not going to embrace Christians following Christ. They're not going to encourage you, hey, don't give up. Hey, mercies are new each morning. They're not going to say that. You know who's the only people that are going to say that? Us. We need to encourage one another and be honest and open with one another. And that takes personal investment. That takes us knowing the, I know one life group uh, meets and they say, hey, how are you walking in? Or something to that effect. How are you coming in? Meaning the real you. How are you doing this week? What's the real truth about where you are? We need to be that kind of personal with each other. Like a father loves children. And he uses those three words, encouraged, comforted, and employed. Implored, not employed, sorry. Implored. So those three words, encouraged means to urge strongly. And you can see in the word encourage, it means to put courage into them. When, when you disciple someone, they're not going to hear what you have to say if they don't feel like you're personally invested, like you care about them. It takes personal relationship to be like, hey, you can do it. You really can. You don't have to stay where you are. God has enough power to move you from where you are. I want to put courage into you. That's what encourage means. I know it's not I-N, but that's the idea. The Greek word N, that preface, actually means in, into. 
I want to put courage into you. I want you to know that God can take you where you are. You can do it. Don't give up. That takes personal involvement. That's not somebody from a stage only giving some shout out. That's you guys need encouragement with one another. That's why he's reminding them. Encourage. And then he says comfort. That means to console someone, to give someone hope. Someone that's grieving, someone that's depressed. They need us to comfort them. That takes personal investment. That takes personal involvement. That takes knowing someone, the real them. In order to comfort one another, we've got to know each other. We, if we're going to make disciples, when Paul went to Thessalonica, it wasn't like he only talked to a bunch of believers. He started a church. He, he, talked, he was talking to lost people, and he was encouraging them. He was drawing them into the fold. So if we want to make disciples, train believers, and get non-believers to get saved, we have to learn how to comfort them. Comforting them means we need to know what's going on in their life and be gentle and consoling and encouraging. Then he uses the word implored. And this one's my favorite because this Greek word, if I say it to you, listen to the first part of the word. The word for implored is martyr oh my. Martyr oh my is how you actually sound it. But you know, the word, it come, that's where we get the word martyr. It means to urge someone that this is of great importance. The reason why it has martyr in the root is that's us saying, hey, this is worth dying for. Following Christ, walking in a manner worthy of God, following him, becoming a believer, and following him the rest of your life, it's worth dying for. Now listen, if you tell people this is worth dying for, but you're not willing to be a little uncomfortable for it, they're going to spot that quickly. They're going to know hypocrisy as soon as they see it. If you don't think it's worth dying for, if you don't think it's worth crossing the street, giving up your evening, spending money, sacrificing your time, giving up other pleasures so that you can reach non-believers like Paul was doing, if you don't live like it's that important, you're going to be a hypocrite and a liar if you try to pretend that it is. You can't say it is and live the other way. And that's why Paul is telling them, why did we do all this, verse 12? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. What, what's, what's in a manner worthy of God? Hello? All these things that I'm telling you. Working hard night and day to remove the barriers. Holy living. Having a personal witness that is not, credible, not discrediting you. You do this. You implore them. You encourage them. You comfort them. This is a manner worthy of God. We did all this to make disciples who make disciples, to replicate. And it's all out of the motive of what Jesus did for us. We've got to show them that Christ is important enough to die for, and that takes more than words, always. It takes more than words. I mentioned uh, May 24th of this year, um, it took the authorities 77 minutes before they entered the room. 77 minutes is a long time. Another story of that day, which is interesting, a mom with her kids in that school went to the school, ended up getting handcuffed, because in reality, you can't have unarmed, untrained people walk into a crisis situation. You'll just have more problems and damage and fatalities. But she wanted to go get her kids. They arrested her. They handcuffed her. She calmed down. They finally let her go. Her name's Angelie Gomez. After they uncuffed her, she snuck around the side, 
jumped a gate, went inside the school, and got her two sons and, and brought them out. Why did she do that? Why? Love. Love. Think about this. She had no bulletproof vest. She had no weapon. She had no training. But she loved her sons, risked her life to go get them. You know what Jesus tells the church? Go and do that. Love them like I have loved you. Make them your family. Love them like you're, they're your own. Love them as yourself. The great commission is that you and I would go into all the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them how to obey everything he taught. He has called us to make disciples. You and I are on the scene. People are dying. He's given us the training. He's given us, we're armed. We have the armor. We're ready. We need to go. What happens if we stand around the corner and say, ah, what happens? Lives are lost. Do you think it's that important? Most of you probably not. And I'm not saying that as a judgment. I mean like me too. I've, I've finally, I've confessed this to people. I was in Bible college and I said, I just don't love people. And people were like, oh, shh. I was like, no, I don't love people I don't know. I'm just, I hear these evangelists, they cry over them. I don't, I genuinely don't care for them. And they're like, you cannot say that. You cannot say that in church. I said, but it's true. I wish more of the church would be honest. If it's your neighbor, you probably won't go in. That's the reality. I have five kids. If it were one of your kids, would you go in? Would you make excuses? That's how God loved you. When you were his enemy, he looked at you and chose to love you like he would love his children. Gave himself up for you and has called you to take up your cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your example. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. We will never truly know what it took for you to come here and take up that cross. But we're so grateful. Would you put a fire in our hearts, a holy fire, to follow your example, to learn from Paul and Peter and the other disciples that were martyred and gave up their life for a worthy cause. Help us not be consumers. Help us not to be sitting in shock and fear because we don't know or don't care. Change our hearts. Help us to follow you and give us eyes to see the people around us like you see them. Give us hearts and help us not to play church. That is so boring and such a waste and lives are being lost. And I pray, we pray as a family, help us not be that way. It is only by the power of your spirit that we truly work with your power and that we do the things that you've called us to do. So would you have mercy on us? Give us the joy of working with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen. The church is the hope of the world. There's no plan B. We are the church. You're not waiting to call Paul. You're not waiting on a missionary. Your neighbors don't need anybody else but you. You are the church. Let's go be the church. Grace, we are sent.